where we pick up in chapter 13. So let's read the first five verses and then we will jump into this and kind of take a, a look at a couple different aspects of how this applies to us now. So verses 1 through 5 of chapter 13 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John, or Mark, to assist them. So here's what's happening. And for those of you familiar with God's word, familiar with the New Testament, you know Saul slash Paul goes on multiple missionary journeys. So this sets off his first missionary journey to take the gospel everywhere God is directing, everywhere the Holy Spirit is leading. And this is the first instance of a missionary movement to take the gospel to unknown places. So, the church of Antioch is thriving. Just like the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch is thriving, it's growing, it's being established as one of the centers of Christianity in the world at this time. And we remember, as we talked about, there are a few reasons why the church is growing everywhere outside of Jerusalem. Number one, Jesus has promised that he was going to build his church. We remember that his words to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that was a promise already stated that God is continuing to build his church through his disciples and through the apostles and others. And Antioch being the center of one of those. Reason number two, the church is growing because people are being obedient to their call. People are being obedient to the call of Jesus on their life to leave their homes, to leave their towns, to take the gospel and go into synagogues and go into other areas and bring the hope of Jesus to anybody that will listen. So there's obedience to that. Remember what Jesus had told the original 12 in Acts 1.8. He says, you will be my witnesses, right, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But here we're talking about Saul. Saul wasn't a part of that original commission, but did Jesus not give Saul a commission to go and preach the gospel? Yeah, he did. And we read about that in Acts chapter 9, after his conversion. He said, for, uh, when, when God was speaking, he said, God, For he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So there is Saul's commission, that in like fashion of the Acts 1-8 commission, to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But he includes kings and children of Israel. So Paul is commissioned to speak the gospel to Gentiles and Jews and kings. And we're actually going to see that revelation take place in this chapter. So those leading the church, they were not just enveloping themselves in ministry for ministry's sake. And that's really what we're going to take a moment of time now and really focus in on. What we read in these first five verses is these five guys, Barnabas, remember we were introduced to him in, in chapter four, the son of encouragement, right? He sold a piece of property, 
laid it down before Peter and, and the other uh, apostles in Jerusalem. And we were introduced to him there, and Barnabas was instrumental in, in as we said, uh, introducing the rest of the apostles to Saul, helping build that bridge between him and the others. Then another gentleman by the name of uh, Simon or Simeon of uh, uh, called Niger, and Niger just simply means dark or black. So there is speculation that he was from Africa or some sort. In fact, some in early church history associate this Simeon with Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus's cross. There's nothing to prove that, but there is some belief by a lot of early church uh, fathers that state that this is the same guy. But again, there's no proof of that in any, any sense. Kind of cool if it would be. There another one by the name of Lucius, who we know is from Cyrene or from North Africa. Menaean, uh, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod, speak, this Herod, is the one that approved of the killing of John the Baptist and was the one that tried Jesus. So this Menaean grew up with Herod. In fact, if we read into that word and we look into other documents, it's actually known that he was a foster brother of sorts of Herod. So he grew up in that Roman world, in that Jewish world, in and around Galilee and Jerusalem. And then we see Saul. And not much more is said about him because pretty much the rest of the book of Acts and pretty much the rest of our New Testament is going to be about Saul and or written by Saul who would become Paul. And so we'll get to know him a whole lot more. But various men of different backgrounds and upbringings unified in Christ. We see that, right? They were in Jerusalem. They were from Africa. They are from North Africa. They are from all over the place coming together doing what? What did it say they were doing together? They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And that's what we're going to take a look at, that it's so important that we take a look at those things because as they were doing ministry, expanding the gospel, their focus wasn't just on that. They had to take some focus and minister to the Lord. And I think that's a phrase we need to understand. How do we minister to God? Well, that same word is the word we use for what we do here. What Joe leads us in is worship. They were worshiping the Lord. They were ministering to the Lord in their prayer and in their fasting. And so as they were worshiping, they were doing what Jesus did on a regular basis. So let's not take this as anything more than following the example of Christ. And is that not what we do in our life? We follow the example of Christ. Even Jesus said early on as a child in Luke 2, I must be in my father's house. That's where I need to be. I must be there because that, in a sense, is where I'm going to grow. It's where I'm going to develop in my wisdom, in my knowledge, but also where I can worship my father. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that worship only takes place in the synagogue, in the temple, in the church building. Obviously, we're worship, we can worship anywhere. But we follow the example of Christ, that Christ himself spent much of his time in the synagogues, much of his time in the temple, because that's where he saw the presence of his Father. It wasn't just religious practice, though. And we understand that here. This is dependency. We don't go to church because it's the religious thing to do. We go to church because that's where we are going to depend on God, to hear from God, to activate our faith and our service in the Lord. That makes sense? This is dependency. Ministering to the Lord, worshiping the Lord is dependency. 
And let's, let's look at that a little bit further. If we remember when Jesus was tempted prior to his ministry, he was baptized and the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness. And he spent 30 days or so in the wilderness fasting and praying. It said for that whole time he did not eat. And when he was at the end of his time, Satan came and tempted him at that moment. At his weakest moment, humanly speaking, at his hungriest moment, humanly speaking, that's when Satan attacked. And how did Satan attack in that moment? Well, he used three things that we as humans will fall into always. Hunger, <laughs> pride, and receiving glory for ourselves. Three things, three temptations that Satan tried to use. The first one, he said, I know you're hungry. You haven't eaten for 30 days. Here, turn these rocks into bread. And what was Jesus' response? He went right back to scripture and he said, man shall not live by bread alone. Does that mean we're never supposed to eat? No, it says we are supposed to rely on the word of God. In fact, in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by the bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan came back at him and said, worship me and I'll give you all of this. Glory, right? And Jesus' response, we read in Luke 4, 8, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then that third temptation, Jesus' response, Do not put the Lord God to, your te to the test. To every response of Christ, in his weakest moment, humanly speaking, he responds with the word of God and with faith in who his Father is. And that's what we do. But he spent that time praying. He spent that time seeking the Lord. That God's word was his answer in his weakest moment. That's dependency in worship and prayer. If we go later on in Jesus' ministry, he gives the great Sermon on the Mount, as it's called, right? In Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, we read the Sermon on the Mount. And, and he presents us with instruction on how to pray. Now, I'm not here, and I'm not, I'm not disrespecting any of us here that you don't know how to pray, so tune in so you can learn how to pray in this moment. Please understand, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is if Jesus taught in one of his greatest sermons aspects on how to pray, we better pay attention. Because it may cause us to think differently about how we present ourselves and minister to the Lord, how we worship the Lord, how we commune with the Lord through prayer. And so a couple things. Number one, Jesus taught prayers between you and the Lord. Is that any special revelation, anybody? <laughs> this is between you and the Lord. So that's why he said, don't look at the Pharisees and Sadducees who, who go stand on tables and, and puff out their chest and speak so loud so everyone can hear their prayers and how holy and righteous they are before everybody. No, Jesus said, go into your closet, shut the door, and just seek the Lord. Prayer is between you and God. Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. It's between you and God. But does it take some discipline to set things aside, time aside, and go and spend some alone time quiet between you and the Lord? Yes, it does. It's not an easy thing. Otherwise, the God of this universe would not need to teach us on it. <laughs> it is a difficult thing to do, but it is a discipline of God to worship and minister to the Lord. Number two, prayer is straightforward. 
is straightforward. It's not fancy. It doesn't take the these and thous and nines and all these other fancy words. It's God, I'm tired. Can you help me? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, how many of us want to pray that right now? Yes. But it's that easy, isn't it? We don't need all these fancy churchy words. You don't need to use all the sanctifications and justified, oh, your grace and majesty. Oh, Jesus, hallelujah, amen, because he's going to hear you better. No, you're not speaking any other language. You just speak the simplistic prayer of your heart. And when you don't know what to pray, groan, make a, I'm not saying do that, but I mean, in your own way, stay silent because he knows what you need. But that doesn't inhibit you or should stop you from opening your mouth and trying to come up with something in all of our confusion about this world that we live in and what you need and drop that before his feet. In the most crazy, chaotic, weird, broken fragments of sentences that you can muster and put together, drop those to God's feet. Because one, it's between you and him, so it doesn't matter if anybody hears you. And two, he understands. If he speaks all the languages of this world, he can speak your language. When you don't make any sense and you're confused, he knows. He can translate in his way, right? Prayer is between you and the Lord. Prayer is straightforward. Prayer is dependency. And we actually get that from Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. He says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's dependency. He knows but he's asking for that relationship saying, speak these things to me. Let me know your heart. Let me know your mind. I know, but I'm asking all of us, don't use that as, as an excuse to say, God knows I'm going on my way. He knows what I need. He knows what I want. He'll just give it to me when the time is right and, and all is well. No, speak the words. When you don't know what to say, come up with something <laughs> direct it to him he knows but prayer is a discipline we need and prayer shows dependency that the moment we open up that door and walk out of that prayer closet we're walking out in the confidence that God has heard us we spent time with God and we're not going to take one more step without dependency on God to lead us that's prayer answer this question does that mean you're going to get everything you want no no, you can't pray for a loud boat and hope you get a boat. <laughs> it's got some muscle behind that thing. So that's what these guys were doing. These five men in, in Antioch, they were praying, they were ministering to the Lord. They were dependent on God because they knew they were ministering. They knew they were going to serve. They knew they were going to expand the gospel, but they could not take one step outside that door without God. They knew that. So prior to serving the Lord and whatever we do, whatever we do, we need to show our dependency on the Lord so that our public service is for the Lord. Amen? What else were they doing? Fasting. Fasting. This is a discipline that gets lost for us today. It just does. Because raise your hand right now if you would like to go willingly without food for a significant period of time. Exactly. 
Not a single hand. And I get that. I didn't raise mine either. I, we love food, but we're so dependent on it, not just for life, but for, we just love it. It's good. It, we're, we want it. We need it. We're dependent upon it. So if you can lay something aside that you and your human flesh are so dependent upon to empty yourself for a moment to be dependent on the Lord to hear from him, how much better is that? And that's what these guys were doing. Now, does that mean you have to fast for 30 days? Say no. Louder. Because I want you to I want you to understand that. You don't just because Jesus did that doesn't mean you have to. In fact, there is no direct command to fast for any length of time. There isn't. God commanded back in Leviticus that we we uh, fast for a day a year. That was the only command in the original law. One day a year set aside for atonement to hear from God. To, to bring ourselves back to the feet of God. Jesus never commanded that we must do it, but he didn't say that we should not do it. Does that make sense? So let's talk about fasting for a little bit. This is what Jesus would do. He would go away and spend some time with the Lord, dependent upon the Lord. In Luke 4, 2, and he ate nothing during those days. Now, we can use a lot of things to fast from. Biblically speaking, it was typically food. Did they have social media? Did they have the computers? Did they have the cars? Did they have all these things, the extra stuff that we have in life that we feel we're dependent upon? No, they didn't. But that's not an excuse. It's just, it was what they chose to be without. Food. But fasting like prayer shows dependency and expectancy upon the Lord. Prayer is dependency and so is fasting. But fasting also gives us a sense of expectancy because when we empty ourselves and we quiet our mind as much as possible, there is an expectancy that God is going to speak. Does it mean he will? Not necessarily. But when you truly give yourself to him, dependent upon him, seeking him, will he answer? Yeah, he'll answer in a way, absolutely. In his time, in his will, in his way, for you, specifically, uniquely. But he will answer. But we need to remove what we're dependent upon for strength. In order to empty ourselves, to be filled by the Spirit, the wisdom of God, and the strength that only he can provide. Food gives us strength. It gives us strength to move forward. So does the strength of God. Being dependent on God fills us. That's why Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on the very word of God. So to be quiet before God, to listen for God, to get into his word and then wait for him to speak to you, that will give you strength, motivation, encouragement to carry on in doing what he's called you to do. Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, amazingly that Jesus taught on fasting right after he taught on prayer. Interesting that those are back to back. But in Matthew 6, 17, but when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
So again, like prayer, fasting is not for everybody else. That's why he says, clean yourself up, you know, present your appearance differently. Because when you fast for a significant period of time, you're going to look a little gloomy. <laughs> Our emotions get the better of us. If, you know, if we go a half hour sometimes without food, we get hangry. And we show it in our emotions, right? But Jesus is saying, hey, when you do this and you're without food, it's going to play on your mind and play on your emotions. So present yourself in a way because you don't need to let other people know that you're fasting. That's not for anybody else. So like prayer is in secret between you and the Lord, so is fasting. We don't fast for fasting's sake. Can I say that again? We don't fast... For fasting's sake. You don't fast because you say, okay, now I need to be a little more spiritual, so I better fast and, and spend some time. And so you fast and you, and you get all sorrowful and you drop your head and you get the woe is me's and you get done, you eat a whole pizza and say, okay, I'm going to get back to life as normal. No, you don't do that. That's fasting for fasting's sake. You fast because you're dependent upon God to receive something from Him that you need so you can carry on in the strength of God for ministry. Make sense? That's why we do it. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6. This, this blew my mind in a, in, a, in a special way. Because when you think about fasting again, you think about, okay, i got to get over this need of, of hunger. I need to get over this need to maybe be on my phone. So I set something aside and i got to get over that and and deal with that. But when we do that and we focus on what we're without, it completely diminishes the point of fasting. So what are you thinking about in that moment? God tells us in Isaiah chapter 58, a beautiful chapter that speaks to this concept of fasting because when people fasted before, they did it for religious appearances. They dropped their head. They looked sad. So people would come up to them and say, oh, sweetheart, what's wrong? What's going on? And so the attention would be on them, right? But what did God say about fasting and how we are to approach fasting? Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6 says this. Is not this the fast that I chose, God speaking, that I chose to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Does that sound like going without food in your closet and being ho-hum? No, that's action. That is action. That's the fast. So when you fast, you're dependent upon God to do. You fast to go. You fast to serve. You fast to meet the needs of the community to speak to what's going on, to meet people where they're at, to provide justice and love and support for other people. That's why we fast. We don't fast for us. Do it because you're realizing you're dependent upon so much of this world that it's clouded your vision of who God is to you. So take a moment, take a half a day. There's this intermittent fasting diet fad that's out there, right? And, and what is that about? You fast from, help me out, what is it from like 8 o'clock at night till like noon the next day, right? So the beautiful thing about that is you can sleep through most of it. But that's the diet fad to help kind of reset your body and, 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 and lose some weight and, and all that stuff. However, 
It can be that. It doesn't have to be 30, 40 days. It doesn't have to be a week. It can be half a day as long as you're focused on God during that time period and you're seeking Him in that moment of weakness to have Him fill you. Does that make sense? You don't fast and zone out. And you feel that hunger coming on, or you feel that desire to jump back on social media, or you, whatever it is that you're setting aside. In that moment your mind says, I need this, you immediately go to Him. And then when you are done, in the time period that you have set between you and the Lord, you move on and you serve. That's what it's all about, prayer and fasting. In fact, someone by the name of John Oswald said, fasting is an expression of the conviction that my ways are wrong and God's ways are right. Whether he does anything for me or not. Oh, that was the part we probably didn't want to hear. We realize in that time of fasting and prayer that our ways are wrong, God's ways are right. So I'm going to get back in tune with who God is. Whether he does something for me or not. Do we get to tell the king what to do? Does the slave get to tell the master where we want to go and how we want to work? No. It's dependency, isn't it? We rely on the one who's in charge. In a good way, of course, because he loves us and we know that. So God will use those of us who are seeking him and dependent upon him to do the work that he desires done for the expansion of his kingdom for his glory. So when we consecrate ourselves to God for his purpose, it's only then that he will use us. Can I say that again? When we consecrate ourselves to God for his purpose, it is only then that he will use us. Is God going to use us if we don't use us if we don't seek him at all? I think the answer is no. How is God going to use us if we're not seeking him? If we're not dependent upon him? We don't get to live in all of our selfish, meistic ways and then go to God and say, "Well, God, okay, send me to the, the far reaches of the earth to do your work." No, because when we're so focused on us, all we want is us and our desires. When we deplete ourselves and are dependent upon him, he's saying, now I can use you. Because when you're weak, that's when my strength shines forth. When you can't do it on your own, that's when I can. But look to me for your strength. And I believe that's why Paul would later write to the Corinthian church, my grace is sufficient for you the Lord told him. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. Prayer and fasting. We need to make that as much a part of our life as we do food. As much a part, if not more, part of our life than anything else that we have or do or believe that we need. And I'm committing myself today before you to say, I'm doing this more often. Not for any re religious legalistic effort, but just to say, I need more of this in my life. I need less of this world. 
and more of him. And these are two fantastic ways to make him a priority. Let's look at the second half. Verses 6 through 12 in Acts chapter 13. So when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which just simply means the son of Jesus or the son of salvation. When he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, there's your transition, right? There, now he will be known as Paul throughout the rest of our studies. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. Yeehaw. So a man who went by the name son of salvation, Paul looks him square in the eyes and says, you son of the devil. Because this Bar-Jesus was trying to turn people away from faith in God. He says, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. Now listen, this is beautiful. The proconsul, the Roman authority, the Roman governor, so to speak, on the island of Cyprus, believed when he saw what, he, what had occurred. But listen, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Did he come to faith because of a miracle? He saw the miracle, but he was astonished, astounded, thrown back by the teaching of the Lord. And so here's what we see in this small section here. Charles Spurgeon said, wherever there is likely to be great success, the open door and the opposing adversaries will both be found. If there are no adversaries, you may fear that there will be no success. In fact, Paul would later speak in 1 Corinthians 16, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So God is going to open doors. How many times do we hear that phrase? I'm looking for an open door, or God opened a door for me. If you never found an adversary standing in that doorway, I would kind of be curious to think if God really opened that door for you. Because the way is not going to be easy. If you are going to expand the kingdom of God in the, the gospel of Christ, the love of God, there will be roadblocks. There will be adversaries at the exact same time. And that's what we see here. Paul, Barnabas, and Mark traveling through the island of Cyprus, coast to coast, so to speak. I think the whole island is roughly like 90 miles wide. And so they travel the whole way, speaking in synagogues, preaching the gospel, and then they get to the other side. And they meet this Roman proconsul, set there and elected and sent by Rome itself. And he is a man of wisdom, and he hears about Paul and Barnabas and 
says, I want to hear what you have to say. And here this apostate, this, this Jewish man who's taken up sorcery and, and, and magic to, to wow people that has been done from the beginning of time is doing everything he can to get people away from God. That's why we call him apostate. He left the faith. He might have been Jew by, by, by culture or ethnicity, but not in any respect to who God was. But I want you to hear also that Paul, Barnabas, and Mark, venturing into this missionary journey, determined by God from the beginning of time, confirmed by the Spirit through their prayers, right? Didn't the Holy Spirit speak, saying, set aside Paul and Barnabas for me? So it was confirmed by the Spirit and affirmed and sent by the church. The church didn't approve. The church just laid their hands, these other three men, four men, or whoever else was there, laid their hands on them saying, hey, we agree in the Spirit. Go. And we're behind you. And we'll continue to pray for you. But they encounter an incredible open door to preach the gospel to a Roman official, yet at the exact same time, they encounter spiritual opposition in this Bar-Jesus. But as we saw, Paul calls them out for the evil he was doing, power given to Paul by the Lord to blind him. Now, kind of interesting that if we remember what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul met Jesus because he was going to persecute the church. And what did God do for Saul in that moment? Blinded him. So we see that role reversal. Now here he is ministering to the Lord and for the Lord, expanding the gospel, and somebody else comes in opposition to that. And we see that blindness take place of anybody that's going to get in the way of what God is doing. But the ultimate result is that Sergius Paulus, this Roman official, believed in the Lord. He witnessed what happened, but he was astonished at the teaching of God. And that's what I, I love. That focus there of he heard the word of God. Paul would say to the Romans later on in chapter 10, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of God. Hey, we're guaranteed, promised, opposition right Jesus said the words if they hated me they're gonna hate you we're promised guaranteed opposition when we try to expand the gospel it's going to happen gonna happen and so it causes us to need to look at the world differently we don't see other people and we don't hate other people we don't look at the evil of other people we need to learn to see this world from a spiritual perspective, a spiritual worldview, because it is Satan, it is the devil that is controlling this world for his evil plan. So we need to have spiritual eyes. That's why we pray and that's why we fast for the Spirit of God to move us forward, to see others with the eyes that God has for them. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but what but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is why I started with what I did. It is horrific to me that people are upset that they can't murder babies anymore in certain places. That is evil. It's wrong. But what the world doesn't understand is that I can look at them and say, that thought process is evil. But I love you. That is such a confusing concept to the world around us. To use the cliche to hate the sin but love the sinner. That is something that we have to battle for. We have to do our best to get people to understand. Anything that you do against the word of God is the moral foundation upon which we stand. I want you to recognize and understand because I love you. I have a heart for you. I want you to, to understand God's love for you. But what you do goes against his promised word. But that's why we need to have that spiritual lens to pause and say, God, I need to rely on you so I can speak the truth in love to these people around me so they hear you and not me. Let me sum this up by a, a quick parable that Jesus gave. If you want to turn there, go ahead. It's in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 gives us, Jesus provides a lot of teaching through parables in that chapter. And one of those parables is the parable of the tares or weeds. And we'll make that clear. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 through 30. Let me read it really quick if you want to read along. And then we'll kind of clarify why this is important to what we're talking about. And that in open doors, there will be opposition. The parable uh, says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seeds in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. But let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat into my barn. So there's a lot here in this parable. And the beautiful thing is Jesus goes right on not too long after and explains very clearly what all these things mean. So let me sum it up really quick for you. The seed, the good seed that has been sowed in the field is what? True believers of the gospel. Now this is a little bit different from other parables we've heard. Parable of the soils, the seed that was thrown out was the gospel, was the word of God. Here, the seed is God planting true biblical followers of Christ into the world. But at the same time, the enemy comes in, whoop, falling over. The enemy comes in and sows counterfeit seed. Counterfeit Christians. People that look and sound like followers of Christ, but in fact are not. 
because the weeds that they're talking about looked very similar to the grain they were growing in biblical terms. And so, what do you have? You have true believers of the gospel. At the same time, you have counterfeit Christians planted by the enemy. That may cause a lot of confusion. And so that's why the servants went, should we not gather and, and go and rip out the, the weeds and, and get them out of here? And God said, no. So what's the point? We may hear a lot of people speak about God. Sound Christian. Sound like they have the love of God in them. It is not for us to look at them and go, I don't believe you're true. I don't believe you're a true follower of Christ. Therefore, get out. It's not for us to root out what we see as the problem. What is our job? To plant more seeds of righteousness. It is not our job to root out the evil in this world. That's not our job. Can we speak to it? Yes. Can we sense it and see it? Yes. Is it prevalent in this day and age? Absolutely. But it is our, not our job to go and say, okay, we need these rules and these rules and these policies to root out the evil and get rid of the garbage so we can have this utopian, beautiful, peaceful society based on principles that I believe are right in government so I as a Christian can be a little more at ease. No. That's not our job. Our job is to plant the good news of Jesus Christ. To present the gospel. To show the rest of the world what righteousness is. What love is according to God's word. Because whose job is it in the very end to gather everything and separate everything? The only judge we have. That's his job. That's when he will separate the wheat from the counterfeit. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. That's his job. We've been given a commission. We've been given a job, and that's to do what? Preach the gospel. Love others. Do what Jesus calls us to do. And in the hopes that people will see Christ in us. And when they hear our words, and they see our actions, like Sergius Paulus, that's Roman proconsul, heard of the word of God from Paul. And he saw the actions in their life and he became a follower of Jesus. Now, how can I say that? Because extra biblical record and archaeological evidence on the island of Cyprus tells us that Sergius Paulus became a Christian and so did his family. What a beautiful picture of the hope that Paul brought. He didn't, Paul didn't come in saying, hey, I'm kind of, I'm half Jewish and I'm half Roman and I understand the Roman law, so how about we institute these kind of laws on your island so things are a little bit better for the people that live here? No. He went in, brought the gospel, shared the word of God, and let the Holy Spirit and God himself do the rest. And that's a great example for us. But where does it start? In private. In secret in your prayer, in your fasting, relying on God, so that when that door opens and you find opposition, your hope, your trust, and your strength is in Jesus Christ and His Word and nothing else. Amen? Amen. Amen.
So, let's be a people called by God, dependent on God, and sent by God. And realize that we don't approach this world without God. A world marked by spiritual darkness needs to be navigated by those filled with the Holy Spirit and clothed in that spiritual armor that His Word gives us. So, me challenge us all. Practice these spiritual disciplines. Dare I say, put it, put it on your calendar to pray. I know, that sounds a little weird. But if you don't own your calendar, what's going to own you? So I don't mean to be very cliche this morning, but if you don't own your calendar, your calendar will own you. The busyness of this world will own you. It will dictate what you do. So if you don't set aside your time and own your own time, oh, but the, the pressures of my job and family and everything else, okay, we get that. But put it on your calendar, make a reminder. So when that bell goes off, you go into that room, you go into that closet, you get down on your knees and you separate that time. Unavailable to the rest of the world. Because you're dedicating time to the Lord. Same thing with fasting. Whatever you need to do, own it, practice it, make it a discipline. Just like you get up every day and you breathe automatically, you brush your teeth automatically, you get clothed automatically, you eat at certain times automatically. So let's make pra uh, prayer and fasting just as automatic. Practice these things. Get behind those closed doors. Be faithful in that practice. Do it on a more regular basis so that it becomes part of who you are. Again, fully dependent on the Lord in every way.